I believe that Jesus does welcome LGBTQ people. Hello and welcome to Brookings First United Methodist Church's new podcast, Conversations with Pastor Pete. I am Pastor Pete. This season will take you through my discussions on LGBTQ issues in the Bible. While some Christians believe that people who are not heterosexual are condemned by God, this is not the only Christian view. I will show how Jesus followers can include the LGBTQ community. I welcome your questions. You can email us at prayer at brookingsmethodist.org or send them in on our Facebook page at Brookings First United Methodist Church. This is intended to offer another view to the standard view that has condemned LGBTQ people um, out of hand. I invite you to participate. God bless. So, welcome everybody. Welcome back. Each week I say to Jen, will, will anyone come back? So I'm glad you guys have come back. Um, I will start with a, a biblical problem, as I did last week, and then give us a bit of a direction of where we're going. Let's be clear that the Bible says that left-handedness is evil. Is evil. It is assumed throughout Scripture that if you're left-handed, you're evil. It's very much part of um, Middle Eastern culture. If you've been to the Middle East, you will know that being left-handed um, has cultural connotations because when you do your hygiene, you use your left hand to wash your body. You use your right hand to eat and to greet. It's not negotiable. And within that culture, if you want to insult someone, you show them your left hand. You don't have to say anything. They are insulted because this is the dirty hand. Okay? Um, so, even today, there are some signs you can use with your left hand and people know they are completely insulted. In fact, even if you're asking someone for directions, they will literally put this hand behind their back and show you, even if it means showing you like that. So built into the Bible is this assumption. I, I gave you a page today so that we, you just have a bit of stuff you can follow on. Jen gave some pages out. But, but God models for us. So for example, Matthew 25, 33. On the day of judgment, the righteous sheep will be on his right while the sinful goats will be on his left. And everybody would have nodded and said, you're right. 
because the right hand side is the good side and the left hand side is the bad side. Or Acts 2.33, Jesus has been exalted to what side of the Father? The right hand side of the Father. And certainly for a whole lot of years in the Christian church, left-handedness was considered evil. And there was a time during the 15th and the 16th century that left-handedness was a sign that you had a demon. And people were persecuted. And particularly when it came to the Inquisition, the identifying of witches, if a woman was left-handed, she was an automatic candidate for suspicion. Go back and read that period. It's quite, it's a frightening period where women would be identified as witches and one of the identifying marks was she used her left hand because left-handedness, somehow it was thought to be linked to Satan. Right-handedness was linked to God. But let me try this on you. So if I stood up on Sunday and preached that left-handed people are evil, how long do you think I'd last? You see, you see, where I'm going is we have changed our minds. Something that was accepted as given fact. Something that allowed the Inquisition latitude to run itself and say, yes, this one's left-handed, they clearly are evil, would not be tolerated today. So, so the theme for tonight, Christians have changed their minds over time. I'm picking on a couple of examples tonight. There are many. Because sometimes people say, we must adhere to the original teachings of the church as if we've never changed our minds. When in fact we have. Um, it's hard to change our minds. Ask me, the older I get, the harder it is to change my mind. Um, but we have. So I will just walk us through a couple of examples, and then I have a movie I'm going to show us. And the strength of the movie, it's made by Americans for America, so that you don't have this weird guy from Africa, and you're tempted to think, well, what does he know anyway? So we'll have a, have a movie, and then I'll pull it together with some discussion afterwards. Are you okay with that? So let's try our first example. I'm going to give you two texts from Scripture. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, which has to do with slavery. And I'm going to say up front, the Bible supports slavery 100%. There are no texts in the Bible that oppose slavery. There are many texts in the Bible that support slavery. Ephesians 6, 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling in singleness of heart as you obey Christ. So if you were a slave and you were thinking of running away, your local Methodist pastor would quote you Ephesians 6, 5. Or alternatively, might quote to you 1 Timothy 6. Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. 
150 years ago, if you lived in this country, you would have been part of the fierce debate around slavery, loosely categorized as north or south, a little more messy than that, but using the Bible. And there was a southern reading of the Bible and a northern reading of the Bible. But Christian leaders in the south believed the Bible supported slavery and being a slave owner was not incompatible with following Jesus. I quote to you John Mitchell, who is a Methodist pastor, writing in the Western Democrat, 24th of February, 1854. The injunction in the New Testament is not, masters, discharge your slaves, but be merciful to your slaves. And slaves, be obedient to your masters. This is the good Methodist preacher saying, we are not told that we must free our slaves. We're just told that we must be kind to our slaves. And by the way, slaves, you are told, obey your masters. Here's the topic of the sermon for Sunday. But I doubt there's any preacher today who would dare get up and preach this. You would be shocked and horrified were I to get up and preach a sermon saying we need to go and find our slaves again. There was a time where the Christian church was convinced that slavery was okay. And they had texts from the Bible in support of slavery. If you like, the Bible says it. There were other Christians who were saying, but when we read the practice of slavery through the eyes of Jesus, it's incompatible. You cannot love somebody as a brother or a sister and own their life. The two do not gel. You cannot say, I love you as a brother, but I own you. I know in this country it took a civil war. Dreadful, dreadful war that broke everybody's hearts. But since then, the Christian church has never used the slave-quoting passages to justify slavery. We have changed our minds. I come out of a country, South Africa, which used the Bible to justify racism. I grew up with preachers who would preach that it is God's will that there be a white church and a black church. But that stuff doesn't quite connect with you, so I found a quote from this country. Let's just talk for a moment about segregated churches. The concept that it's the will of God that we separate churches into white churches and black churches, and I take you to Bishop John Christian Keener, a native of Baltimore, a member of the first graduating class of Wesleyan University, 1835, disagreed with John Wesley on the issue of slavery, joined the Alabama Conference in 1843, remained in the Methodist Episcopal Church South when the denomination split over slavery. Here he is in 1890, talking to the General Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church South. We now have a solidly white church for which we thank God. A 
It's a bishop. A bishop, the leader of the conference, thanking God that he's managed to create a solidly white church, believing it's the will of God. We have changed our minds. We no longer believe it's the will of God to segregate people based on skin color. The Holy Spirit has led us to places where we discover that God loves all people equally, and in fact, being together as a family of God is good for us and grows us. We are no longer there. Certainly that's the story of the country I come out of, where we painfully had to outgrow a religious model that separated churches and discover that we belonged to one another. And then my last example is about women. And I give you a couple of quotes from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Women should keep silence in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law says. And then the next verse. If they wish to inquire about something, they are to ask their own husbands at home, for it is dishonorable for women to speak in the church. It couldn't be any clearer than that, could it? And in case you hadn't got it, I also take us to 1 Timothy 2, 10 to 12. Women who claim to love God should do helpful things for others. They should learn by being quiet and paying attention. They should be silent and not be allowed to teach or tell men what to do. It's in the Bible. Rick, you're going to get into trouble, my brother. You are pushing the limits. <laughs> it's in the Bible. Uh, this is also in the Bible, by the way. 1 Timothy 2.9. I would like for women to wear modest and sensible clothes. They should not have fancy hairdos or wear expensive clothes or put on jewelry made of gold or pearls. I hope none of you are sitting here with gold jewelry on. And I hope you have thrown your pearls away. But the Holy Spirit has grown us, grown us to discover that there's enormous wisdom to be gained by listening to women as well as men. That women often bring a different perspective and we are enriched for it. So although it's in the Bible, we have been able to change our minds. We've been able to grow beyond that, to recognize that that was a particular perspective in a particular context at a particular time. We no longer live in that time, and we can move beyond that. I'll come back to this. Um, we're going to put a, a short movie up. Short, about 28 minutes. Live with me. Let's walk through it. It talks about the United Methodist Church. Well, the Methodist tradition, let's put it that way. And how we as a church have grown through a number of different changes. I haven't got popcorn, but if you could just sit back and relax. And allow, just let the movie speak to us a bit. Thanks, Sam.
Welcome to this video podcast series, The United Methodist Church, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, produced by the Alabama-West Florida Reconciling Ministry Network. I'm Dr. Sam Parks. In this episode, An Impulse to Include, we are looking back to yesterday and American Methodism's past to ask, how did we get here? And by here, I mean the point of schism in the United Methodist Church over whether LGBTQIA plus folk should be fully included in the life of the church. I didn't hear him say it, but someone once told me that Dr. Thomas Frank, my United Methodist polity professor, called the United Methodist Church the Chevrolet of churches. And by this, I assume he meant that of all the Christian denominations in the U.S., the Methodist Church has always tended to reflect the issues and interests of American culture in microcosm. Just as the U.S. has consistently redefined citizenship and who is included in the phrase, all men are created equal, so also Methodism has redefined the sorts of folks who qualify for membership and leadership in the church. And the stories of both nation and church could be told in following any number of issues, but we're choosing to tell the story of how we got here by focusing on the smallest common denominator, people. What sorts of people can be in the church, can represent their churches to the conference, can serve in leadership and be licensed or ordained into ministry and conference membership, and who can be appointed to serve as pastor of a local church? These are critical questions in American Methodism, and the answers to them have changed radically through the years. Every step of the way, American Methodism has become more inclusive of people over time, not less and without alteration of our doctrines or articles of faith. And nearly every time, opponents of inclusion have used the Bible to make their argument, but then eventually wound up yielding their position. So let's begin at our foundations, the Wesleyan movement in Great Britain, because it is there that the story of inclusion truly begins. The theological impulse of Methodism from its inception was inclusive, mainly because it was egalitarian. In the early 18th century, this sort of hyper-Calvinism had been misused to justify the class system in Britain and maintain social and economic inequality. You're poor? Well, must be God's will. Oh, you were born into a coal mining family. You must be divinely destined for that work. You see, one's place in the world and the problems within society at large were often accepted passively as being part of the sovereign will of God. The poor of England were spiraling out of control, gin and prostitution, violence, the slave trade, and appalling corruption in the church and government created one of the worst urban environments Europe had ever seen. Nevertheless, John Wesley gave the lowest class in England dignity honoring them as the children of God. He preached that all may be saved, and that grace was available to all. And all meant all. Wesley embraced the radical equality that his Arminianism taught, and thus he embraced people in every station and place in the culture of his day. This theology of universally available salvation gave people hope and energy to change their lives and take responsibility for their own fate. They were no longer forced to see themselves as helpless victims of a divinely inspired plot to keep them poor. 
all that was required to become a member of the United Societies was, quote, a desire to flee from the wrath to come and to be saved from their sins. And that's it. Anyone could become a member of the Methodist movement, and they did. Not to say that there were no requirements for continuing membership, however, as Mr. Wesley's general rules prescribed the fruitful life. But who could preach in the first United Societies? Wesley styled his preachers in various ways, helpers and assistants, but the most telling of his titles for them was sons in the gospel. <laughs> Wesley's preachers did not have to have seminary training or theological degrees. They were simply people of spiritual experience who simply had the gifts and graces for the work in Wesley's sight and were willing to learn from him. And they were all men. Wesley did appoint many women as class leaders and encourage them to lead in prayer. And after all, more women than men joined the Methodist movement. Wesley was initially opposed to women preaching, but he eventually evolved on the issue and did license some women to preach, but never allowed them to itinerate on the circuits. But it cannot be ignored that the Methodist movement provided women significant leadership opportunities in comparison to many other traditions. Is it any wonder that a church founded soon after a revolution, throwing off the tyranny of a monarchy, would find its first schism prompted by a revolt over the unquestioned authority of bishops? The Methodist Episcopal Church, established at the 1784 Christmas Conference in Baltimore, continued Wesley's practice of clergy dominance of the church. The Methodist Conference was a connection of clergy, a fact that received almost instant opposition in America from the beginning. Protest against the absolute authority of bishops and the exclusion of laymen uh, yes, that's right, lay men from the councils of the church, grew with every meeting. Eventually, the Methodist Protestant Church broke away from the Methodist Episcopal Church in 1828. Their motto? A church without a bishop in a land without a king. The Methodist Protestant Church began to include laity, <laughs> lay men, as part of the annual conference, establishing the pattern of sending one lay member to annual conference for every appointed clergy. Neither the Methodist Episcopal Church nor the ME Church South did this for decades. In 1939, at the Union of Methodism's three branches, the inclusive Methodist Protestant Church practice of lay membership in annual conference became the norm. Nevertheless, it was not until 1976 that the Book of Discipline would mandate that a number of laity equal to the number of clergy, including retirees, should be members. Who can participate in church governance? Any member of the church can. Here is one example of that inclusive impulse in the early days of American Methodism that is rejected by the majority but comes to be the dominant impulse and an important part of our polity, practice, and discipline. Today, we look back and ask, how could we have not allowed laity to be part of our governance? Every step of the way, American Methodism has become more inclusive of people over time, not less.
As I noted earlier, Mr. Wesley evolved a bit on the issue of women in ministry, granting some licenses to preach to women who were effective in the work in the last decades of the 18th century. But he was immensely encouraging to women in lay roles, such as class leaders and prayer leadership. His mother Susanna's forceful leadership at home and in church surely informed his thinking here. Mr. Wesley had a deep appreciation for the leadership capacities of women, even if these gifts were not formally certified, until 1771, when he licensed Sarah Crosby and Mary Boskinet to preach. On the American side, pietist experiences of Methodist religion, well, they empowered women like Barbara Heck to lead faith communities. But formal leadership opportunities for women in the American church became fewer. Women held the office of class leader only briefly and sporadically. So women who did experience calls to preach had to find creative ways to exercise that call. The years of the Civil War found women assuming much greater roles in their churches and communities as the men were all off in the military. Women often had to manage businesses and large organizations and farming operations, and they gained more and more interest in community affairs and politics. They created and administered relief organizations during and after the war, and the years following saw women's missionary societies in all of the Methodist branches, North and South, English and German, Black and White, establishing orphanages and rest homes for the aged, and women also developed home and foreign missionary societies. In 1874, the Women's Christian Temperance Union was founded largely by Methodist women such as Frances Willard and soon became the nation's largest women's organization. It was predicated upon a social analysis that saw drunkenness and alcoholism, saloons, and the liquor industry as the determinant factors in crime, abuse, poverty, unemployment, and corruption and it capitalized on long-standing Methodist commitments to temperance. Gradually, the WCTU pursued grander social reforms that would not succeed without votes, specifically the votes of the people most affected by those reforms, women. Thus, the WCTU became the birthplace of the American suffrage movement. Francis also believed strongly that women should be in the pulpit. So the, the WCTU became an advocate for the inclusion of women into full clergy rights in the Methodist Episcopal Church. The Boston University School of Theology had the practice of accepting women into its divinity degree programs. In 1876, Anna Oliver became the first woman to graduate from a Methodist seminary at Boston University. In spite of her excellence in local church ministry, her conference and bishop repeatedly blocked her ordination. Also refused that year was Anna Howard Shaw, who had been licensed in serving a church on Cape Cod for six years and made the highest score that year on the ordination exam. She moved to the Methodist Protestant Church and was ordained by the New York Conference in 1880, in secret, the day after the men had been ordained. In 1939, when the three branches of Methodism merged, Methodist Protestant women were no longer granted ordination rights. At every moment, from Wesley's day to our own, two verses from Paul's epistles have stood in the way of women preaching in Methodism. 
1 Corinthians 14.34, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. And then 1 Timothy 2.12, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. Women in nearly every generation of Methodism wrote powerful and eloquent defenses of women preaching, refuting these verses and finding so much more warrant for women doing this work in many other places in the Bible. And yet, it was not until April 1956 that the General Conference of the Methodist Church granted full clergy rights to women. And on May the 18th that year, Maud Jensen became the first woman admitted into full conference membership in the Central Pennsylvania Conference. Today, we look back and ask, how could we have not allowed women to be equal partners in mission and ministry? Every step of the way, American Methodism has become more inclusive of people over time, not less. Without doubt, Mr. Wesley was a leading advocate for the abolition of slavery in the New World, but for 150 years before Wesley, the complete ownership of other human beings along with all of their descendants, known as chattel slavery, had become a well-established American institution in the South. During their ministry days in the New World earlier in their careers, John and Charles Wesley got to experience firsthand the atrocities and abuse suffered by black bodies. John's tract, Thoughts Upon Slavery, first published in 1774, is thought by some to be the most strident and forceful set of arguments for abolition in its day. In this tract, Wesley argues that slavery is the result of greed and that the need for inexpensive labor in the Americas was really the only reason for it. He refutes the trope that slaves are actually rescued from more harsh conditions on the African continent and that slavery is actually an improvement in their lives and he describes the horrors of the forced transport of Africans to the New World in chains on ships, and the beatings, rapes, forced separations of husbands and wives and parents and children that black Africans would endure if they survived it. Ten years later, the Christmas Conference of 1784 in Baltimore would witness a racially integrated gathering with leading black preachers Harry Hoosier and Richard Allen participating in the conference. The conference minutes in those days took a question-and-answer form, and after much of their routine business was complete, the question is asked, what methods can we take to extirpate slavery? The answer is a clear and ringing denunciation of slavery. We view it as contrary to the golden law of God, on which hang all the law and the prophets, and the inalienable rights of mankind, as well as every principle of the revolution, to hold in the deepest debasement in a more abject slavery than is perhaps to be found in any part of the world except America, so many souls that are all capable of the image of God. The conference then required every Methodist minister to emancipate their slaves within a year. But the pushback from Southerners was so strong that the next year that language was watered down, allowing that the rules were to be applied only so far as they were consistent with the laws of the state. By 1808, all language about abolition had disappeared from the Book of Discipline. This, along with much immoral and racist treatment, inevitably led to the exodus of many black people from the Methodist Episcopal Church to form their own denominations. 
Richard Allen and Absalom Jones led the black membership of St. George's Methodist Church in Philadelphia out to establish their own church. And in 1816, the African Methodist Episcopal Church was established as its own denomination, with Allen elected as its first bishop. And in 1821, the AME Zion Church was similarly organized in New York. The ensuing decades would witness the gradual spiraling downward of the ME Church toward schism. The Northern churches brought resolution after resolution demanding the abolition of slavery among Methodists, and at the General Conference of 1844, Bishop James Andrew, a slave owner, was suspended from exercising his office until he had given up his slaves. The Southern delegates were appalled at what they considered uh, a massive overreach of the conference, and they left the ME Church to establish the ME Church South. What is so hard for us to understand today is that in the antebellum U.S., the Scripture's defense of slavery was viewed by many as the much stronger biblical argument to be made over the biblical attacks on the institution. On almost every page of the Bible, slavery is assumed to be permissible in some form. Many religious leaders felt that a common-sense reading of the text would tell anyone that God does not oppose it. The far harder biblical argument was that God opposed slavery and even much less would abolish it. It took a war for the theology of abolition to be reflected in the law of our land and in our Constitution. Following the Civil War, the congregations of former slaves within the ME Church South were encouraged to form their own separate denomination, and in 1870, the colored now Christian Methodist Episcopal Church was formed. But not a few black members and churches remained in the three majority white branches of Methodism. For almost a hundred years, this North-South schism held, and in 1939, after several false starts, three branches of Methodism chose to unite. But the Union raised the question as to how to deal with merging black and white churches into a single structure. Dr. William McLean quotes John Graham as saying, The Negro became the sacrificial lamb on the altar in order that Union could be consummated. And the form that that altar took was the creation of a system of six U.S. jurisdictions, five geographic and one racial. All black churches and clergy were segregated into the central jurisdiction regardless of location, and where the election of bishops had formerly been a function of the general conference, that power was now vested in the jurisdictional conference and was nearly its sole task. Bishops elected in one jurisdiction were only permitted to exercise Episcopal authority within the bounds of the jurisdiction that elected them. This would ensure that the southeastern jurisdiction would not have to elect black bishops or whites sympathetic to the cause of racial integration, and no bishop elected elsewhere could take any authority in the southeastern jurisdiction. While provisions were made for equal black participation at the general conference, Black people were to be segregated at every connectional level of the church's life below that of the national structure. The 1954 decision by the U.S. Supreme Court outlawing segregation in public education and the ensuing movements for civil rights and voting rights for black people applied more pressure than the Methodist Church could bear, with several plans being raised for the dissolution of the central jurisdiction the church then settling upon the 68 Union with the Evangelical United Brethren as the right time. Interestingly, after the 1966 General Conference, 
every individual annual conference had to approve the plan of union of the general church, as well as devise a plan to merge the white Methodist EUB and central jurisdiction conferences into a single annual conference where all churches and pastors would be on equal footing. They were required to do so before the 1972 General Conference when merger was mandated. Well, ending segregation certainly doesn't create integration or reconciliation or restoration. There are still churches that would not accept a black pastor or a female pastor, for that matter, into their church, which is painful and unjust to the black and brown bodies throughout the church making it difficult to attract and retain clergy of color. Still, today we can look back and ask, how could we have not allowed black people full membership and equal leadership opportunity at any time in our past? The march toward full inclusion must continue on, and we must ask why the full inclusion of black people isn't more complete now. American Methodism has become more inclusive of people over time and not less. But sometimes what we say we believe about inclusion and how we actually practice what we believe are not the same. And that severely compromises our integrity and damages our ability to make disciples for Jesus Christ. There's a whole interesting history here about divorce in the Methodist Church, and I'll have a bit more about this in the script and notes that we plan to share with you. Suffice it to say right now that just like the rest of the culture in the U.S., a huge shift in thinking about divorce and the stigma it carries has occurred in the last century. Here are a couple of highlights. Nothing about divorce is mentioned in any book of discipline before 1884. And soon thereafter, all of the predecessor denominations start talking about it. It's viewed as unlawful, and no divorced person can marry except in the case of being the victim of an adulterous spouse. Over time, this gradually changes, and the church begins to see the value of taking a less legalistic and more therapeutic approach to divorce for the whole family. Today, the Book of Discipline says divorce is a regrettable alternative in the midst of brokenness, and it deserves our grief, but not our judgment. Divorced people, including clergy, can remarry now without consequence. But what I really want you to see is how similar to divorce homosexuality is being treated by the General Conference, and I'm thankful for Daryl Stevens for pointing this out. The first mention uh, about divorce, as I said, is in 1884. First mention of homosexuality is 1972. The first mention is placed in both cases in a non-binding area of the discipline. In 1884, it's in a section called the special advice. And in the case of homosexuality, of course, it's placed in the social principles. Then both are subsequently moved to that part of the discipline specifying unauthorized conduct of a pastor. Both of the bans are considered absolute, allowing no room for discernment or exception, and both are repeatedly challenged by annual conferences and individuals who disagreed with the discipline. As interpretation of the Bible has changed as the culture has changed, every step of the way, American Methodism has become more inclusive of people over time, not less.
Here are four ways in which Methodism has grown in its definitions of who can participate, who can lead, who can preach and perform the sacraments, and who can marry and be married. We could also easily include Native Americans and Hispanic people and and many others in our inclusion roll call. And most of the time, the opponents of inclusion have used Scripture as the basis of their arguments, and time and again, the interpretation of Scripture simply changed by some combination of the force of war, the force of logic, or the force of culture. But one thing has not changed at all. None, not a whit. Our doctrine has not changed. The restrictive rules of our church in the Constitution have stood long years of time protecting our doctrinal standards. Our beliefs about God and Jesus Christ and the state of humanity and the Scripture way of salvation, none of these have been in the least altered or affected by including more people. For nearly 200 years, the opponents of inclusion have promised that laity or women or black people, divorced people, and others would be like doctrinal Trojan horses that would at best water down our faith or at worst rip our faith from its biblical theological Methodist hinges. But they are wrong. The creeds are all still there. The essentials of the faith that we share with others in Christendom, all still there. And those beliefs that distinguish us as Methodist Christians, grace upon grace, the need for holiness of heart and life, heartwarming experiences of salvation, and the practice of spiritual disciplines, all still there for us, in us. Whether we are lay or clergy, no matter our gender identity or expression, regardless of our skin color or our marital status or the person that we love. The true way, the scriptural way, the Methodist way is still our way. As Mr. Wesley told us, grace for all, grace in all. The reconcilers of our conference just happen to believe that our holy God once again is renewing the church with the inevitable inclusion of our LGBTQ siblings, and that not too long from now, we will look at one another and ask, how could we have ever excluded these beautiful people from any ministry of the church? And we will see just how much richer we are for the gifts of their presence and leadership, and we will once again affirm that every step of the way, American Methodism has become imperfectly but certainly more inclusive of people over time and not less. That is our hope for the church, and that is our hope for you. So 
<clears throat> Sorry, Saab led a conversation over three weeks. Um, the basic premise being that we need to be open to the possibility of change and the possibility of learning new things. I look back, I've been a pastor for 40 years, and I look back at the church that I started out in, and it certainly is not the church that I'm in now. I've had to grow. I've had to grow in the kind of music that we use. I've had to grow in the way, I think back, I had to grow in the Bible that I use. Um, a big explosion was 1979 when they introduced the New International Version. It was like, wow, there's a new Bible. But it had to change. Um, but at a bigger level, I am convinced that that deep in our Methodist bones is the willingness to ask the Holy Spirit to grow us. I have given two texts at the end of the second page, which I do want to give you. Um, if we believe, it's the last paragraph, if we believe the Holy Spirit nurtures us, then it's necessary to grow in our faith. And I quote from Hebrews 6.1, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ, be taken forward to maturity. There's an assumption that we will keep growing. Um, the early church had to grow. Initially, they believed only Jewish people could follow Jesus, and they outgrew that and discovered that Gentile people could be welcomed as well and even become leaders, which was a shock for many. But they grew. Um, and so similarly, I am trying to make an argument that suggests that even if you and I grew up in a church that looked at gay people and wondered how, how they could possibly be gay and, and wondered why they still wanted to hang around in the church. Maybe God is growing us beyond that and God is saying, let's welcome all people um, without the kind of judgment that gets laid on people's lives. And, and, I, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying welcome people so that we can change them. There's nothing more insulting to somebody to say, Welcome, I'm going to go to work on you and change you now. That's not welcome. Um, welcome really implies I will welcome you for who you are and allow the Spirit of God to go to work in your life. And how God wants to work with people really is up to God. But so often we want to set ourselves up as the judges who must shape other people's lives for them. And if I can plead for anything, I have given the second text from Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I'm pleading for us to be a loving community. I'm pleading for us, I've put this shirt on, 
to be kind. If nothing else, I'm not even telling everybody to agree with me, but I am saying let's be kind. And if you were to ask me of the kind of church I would dream this one to be, I would dream of this being a welcoming church where anyone who walks through the door is welcomed and we can be kind. That does mean anyone. And it's hard to, to say anyone because anyone is welcome. But I do, I do want to add, and if members of the congregation are unkind, you might well find me coming to you and saying, you better learn to be kind. You don't have to agree with that person, but you better learn to be kind. I'm not trying to make the whole church believe the same thing. But I am challenging this church to be kind. Challenging the church that this can be a place of welcome. As much as each of us are welcome, we need to show the same welcome for others. And if there is anyone here who's unwilling to welcome someone else, I'm going to go stand next to that person who wasn't welcome and say to them, come in, you are welcome. Does, does that make sense? If, if I'm expecting God to love me, then I better learn to be loving to the other people that God loves as well. I hope you have heard me say quite carefully, there are different points of view on the inclusion or the exclusion of LGBTQ people. I've tried to give you an alternative point of view because most of us have only heard one point of view. But I'm hoping underneath all of this you will hear me insisting that God calls us to be loving. I will love every single member of this church without reserve. I will love every member. And if I find someone being unloving, I will challenge you on it. Be loving. You don't have to agree, but be loving. And if you can't be loving, I'll come and pray for you that God fill your heart with love, that you can learn to be loving. I'm done. I've said my piece. I do want to give a moment for comment. Um, I, I, it's a little hard in this format, and I'm grateful to those who are watching on the recording as well. Um, but if there are questions or comments, now's the time. The world will become a better place when the power of love takes over from the love of power. Isn't that awesome? The love of power often crushes people. The power of love embraces people. Nice quote. Kay, you gave me a quote last week from your fortune cookie if you're not going if you can't change your mind why have one something like that if you can't change your mind why have one <laughs> uh, yeah i liked it cuz because 
I started out by saying the older I get, the harder it is to change my mind because I found stuff that works for me, so why should I change it? Um, but I discovered having three daughters helped me change my mind often. Um, they are, they've been good for me. They have stopped me from solidifying, kept challenging me to think. So if you, if you need help, just find your children or find someone else's children, they'll change your mind for you. <laughs> Any other comments? Yes, the American Methodist Church. Fascinating journey, isn't it? Is that an official title? This is, a, what's an official history? It is a history produced for the, for the church. Um, Sam will give you the link. You can, it's online, it's available as a, as a YouTube video. So, um, if so let's do it like this. If you just email the office, I'll send you the link and you guys can watch it again. It's, it's a history of the journey of, the, of Methodism in America. Sometimes a very messy history. Um, I think sometimes when we tell history, we like to clean it up so that it looks happier than it is. There have been moments of struggle, yes. I suppose my concluding, I must watch time, my concluding comment says, change is not easy, change is difficult. But I do think if we don't embrace change, Rick, you had the quote, give it to us. If you don't change, you die. If you don't change, you die. From a doctor, <laughs> who probably was talking about your body, and if you don't change your habits, you're going to die. We've all heard that from a doctor. But I think mentally as well, if we're not willing to grow, the opposite of growth is death. Let's keep growing. And, and I liked the phrase that said, let's keep including. <clears throat> I've said it to you guys repeatedly because I found it here. It's not something that's in my home church, but it's within the United Methodist Church. On the doors of your church, do you guys know what's written on the doors of your church? Open hearts, open doors, open minds. It's a slogan that your church has embraced. I love that it's written on the door. This door is open. You're welcome. Um, you guys did it. I'm embracing it. <laughs> this is an open-ended conversation. I understand that. Um, I'm certainly not going to lead some kind of vote in the life of the church. I would hope that we as a church can just keep on embracing people and welcoming people. I am not about to lead some kind of division, some kind of let's figure who's in and let's figure who's out. Because I've said everyone's in. Everyone's welcome. Um, I'm just so grateful to know that God loves me. I'm amazed because if you knew stuff about me, you might not love me, but God loves me.
And so I show the same love to others because it's amazing that God can choose to love us. How dare I exclude someone from the love of God? You are welcome. I know. So what about the splits within the United Methodist Church, the United Methodist Church that, that runs in two ways. Um, there's a local conference for the Dakotas, and then there's a general conference, which is a collection of all the conferences of the United Methodist Church, and that meets once every four years and collects United Methodist people wherever they might be found in the world. The hiccup in the process is the pandemic. So people have not been able to travel from elsewhere in the world to come to the US that there can be a general conference, which should have happened last year, which should have happened this year, which hopefully will happen next year. This issue is on the table because there is a group within the United Methodist Church who are saying they want to split off from the United Methodist Church and form a new church which they are now calling the Global Methodist Church, um, and they're wanting to take assets from the United Methodist Church into this new church, and key to that church will be the rejection of LGBTQ people um, as one of the cornerstones to that. That discussion, that decision is meant to happen at the General Conference. The General Conference has not happened, but this group has gone ahead and organized themselves anyway. And they've been holding regional conferences and planning what assets they would like to take and trying to recruit congregations to leave the United Methodist Church. So certainly earlier this year, Pastor Krista and I, coming back from our local conference, the only guarantee we wanted to give to this church is we're not going anywhere. We consider ourselves solidly part of the United Methodist Church. What are those words from... The for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. <laughs> this is us, and we're going to struggle through this, and we're going to hold hands with each other. And, and as you guys saw, the church has worked through other issues. We're convinced we'll work through this issue. Um, so we just wanted to give a guarantee to this congregation that we're not going anywhere. This is us. This is who we are. We will keep plowing this furrow. There were others at the conference. You can talk to Nancy. She was there too. You can talk to Brenda. She was there too. But this is kind of our resolve. We, we are going to keep plowing this furrow because this is who we are. Did that help? Yeah. It's messy. It's messy. Um, but we, we who are the delegates resolved that we'd rather do the messiness within our family then pack our bags and go off somewhere else. You guys okay? Come back, keep talking to me. This, as I said, it's an open-ended subject. Uh, we will have another one of these sometime after Christmas. <clears throat> as soon as we know more about the general conference, I will fill folks in. I don't want people to be in the dark. There mustn't be an idea that somehow there's people in this church who are having a conversation that no one else knows about. That's why we're also posting these online. Anybody can log on 
and can see what the conversations were. There are no secret conversations happening in this church. Be clear. We are committed to transparency. Um, Brenda's chair of our ad council. Any questions, you can go to Brenda. She will tell you the discussions we've been having in leadership in the church. Gretchen's at the back. Gretchen's in charge of our education. If you want to know anything about how the educational process is working, speak to Gretchen. She'll fill you in. Can I pray for us? Lord God, grant us wisdom and grace as we we seek to be obedient. May your love fill our hearts and may we be able to show love to others. So bless our homes, bless our lives, and this week may we become a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless, go in peace. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations with Pastor Pete. To get every episode delivered to you, Subscribe to this podcast for free and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You can always find information about our services and outreach on our website at brookingsmethodist.org and on our Facebook page, Brookings First United Methodist Church. On behalf of the pastors of Brookings First United Methodist Church, thank you for listening and see you next time. This podcast was produced by Sam Becker on behalf of First United Methodist Church in Brookings, South Dakota. Intro and outro music was performed by Ted DeLang under CCLI license number 936719, streaming plus license number 2103961. Visit brookingsmethodist.org for more information.